your cross draws me to your heart makes my spirit sing makes my spirit sing your grace your grace so i hear it call my name i'm waking up to sing i'm waking up to sing Your cross, your cross, it draws me to your heart. It makes my spirit sing. It makes my spirit sing. <laughs> All right, how about this one? This is a little harder. You don't know about me without you have read the book by the name of uh, Tom Sawyer. But that ain't no matter. Who, what's that book about? Who is Tom? Huckleberry Finn, did I hear that? I bet. Hallelujah. Well, you know, uh, I love first lines of stories. Uh, there was one, another one, I think I'm thinking about, a Tale of Two Cities. Remember this one? It was the best of times and the worst of times. Those first sentences sort of encapsulate something about the story. They kind of give you an anticipation. For example, that word, call me Ishmael. A lot of people say, well, what's that mean? Well, it was a written by about a sailor was the voice of the spokesman. Many people think it's a very boring book, but it's a very detailed book for sure. You see, Herman Melville was trying to tell people a lot of whaling so that they could enter in by experience in the story. And call me Ishmael. Ishmael was the name of uh, the sailor that tells the story. He said, call me Ishmael. He didn't say, my name is Ishmael. Call me Ishmael, why? Because Ishmael was a wanderer. He was cast out of his own place of security. He was cast out into a world, and this a world of great dangers. And so this guy was telling us a lot in that one line. Call me Ishmael, because I'm a man who has been out in a great dangerous world. Cast out. I feel like a cast out. So you get a, a, a sign of the story on the first line. And there's one in the Bible that is like that to me, and I think it probably... Uh, to you also, once there was a man who had two sons. We hear that line and we immediately know uh, that it is a, probably the prodigal son, story we call the prodigal son. Now, if the truth be known, this story is not about a prodigal son. There are two sons in this story, but it's not about the other son either, the elder son. It has some storyline that pertains to both sons, but the real hero in the story, the real leading character, is the father. And the whole point of the story is here are the two sons in contrast to their father. Both of them are brothers under the skin. The younger son in this story went off to uh, the far country. And he wasted all of his living, everything he had, on riotous living. Uh, that's a nice way of saying it. He, he, he wasted his living slumming in the deepest pits of the world. He threw away his life prolific. He, he wasted everything. And at the end, he ended up bereft, alone, judged, Living with the pigs, denying, wanting to eat what the pigs ate. He was so desperate and filthy and dirty in the story that, that you know, he wasn't fit to be among 
human beings. The other son is quite different. He maintained his position in the family. He kept, he dressed well every day. He ate the best of foods of his father's house. He went out to work and doing things that were constructive and and brought in more revenue and life to him. And he he was he was at home. He stayed home. He stayed home in his actions, but he didn't stay home in his heart. Because we, we find evidence in the story of the prodigal, and we'll cut that, cover that shortly, that he resented every moment. That his brother was out in the world having fun, and he was at home working without recognition. That he was at home, and his brother was doing all of that stuff. He had envy in his heart for his brother. And that envy, by the way, was not that he wanted what his brother had, because he had that. That envy was based on the fact that he didn't want his brother to have that. You know, we have a phrase in the world, the modern world, I'm going to diss that guy. I'm going to disfriend you. I'm going to diss this. I'm going to diss. Diss. I like that. It's a kind of a shorthand for, I wish you weren't around. I want to make you a zero. You are nobody in my world. You don't have any business in my world. That's the attitude of the elder brother. He was dissing his younger brother. He was envious, and that means he had a heart that was not like the father's either inside. So I, I call I try to call this sermon, you know, for want of a better way to tell the story, I call this message this morning, Brothers Under the Skin. One didn't have the father's heart, went off and wasted his living. The other one stayed home and wasted his heart. Let his, neither one of them understood the father's heart. Neither one of them appreciated where they had come from. Neither one of them uh, appreciated the benevolence that had been poured upon them and the grace that had been afforded them. They thought that what they had was their right and their earning. And so they got, uh, the younger son dared to be truthful for once. We're going to pick up that in a minute. Heavenly Father, God, our words today as, we, as I share today, and may our hearts be instructed by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me read a few verses of the psalm, of the, of the story. <clears throat> Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The young one said to his father, Father, give me the share of my estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, so he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. See how succinct that statement is, how Im the imagery of that is so rich. If you understand a Jewish boy being among pigs in the first place, you've got a real understanding. And not only was he among the pigs, but he wanted to eat what the pigs ate. He, he was sleeping where the pigs slept. He was hanging with the pigs. 
nothing worse. And then the Bible says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. <clears throat> now the story goes on from there, and the best part is to come. But I want to, first of all, think for a moment about the characters of the story, just a little bit. I want you to understand the setting of the story, first of all. It's very important to understand that when the younger son went to the father and said, divide to us your estate, he's not talking about some little country farm or some little flock of sheep or somebody who is over here raising tomatoes and okra. He's not doing that. He's talking about an estate which was like a small town. Now, if you understand how Europe, they, they functioned in, with manors and in the UK, how they had the manor house and the manor property, how we did here in the South with the plantations, how many of the farms in America in the early days were, they were, they were small enterprises. They had everything. They had somebody who could make shoes. In fact, my wife's family has that story. In it. Someone in the family who made shoes for everybody and some of the community. Someone in the family who was a good carpenter, workmanship with fine craft of, of turning lathe, uh, lathe turning uh, furniture, fine furniture. They built rough stuff. They had somebody who could lay rock and brick, somebody who was a blacksmith that could shape and make metal objects. They have somebody who knew how to slaughter pigs efficiently, how to make ham and smokehouse things. You know, they had, they, they had well, they had a similar thing in this day. They, none of them ate pig in that day, I mean. This was another type of enterprise. This was kosher. This was a kosher state, even cleaner, even better. So this young man going to his father said, Father, I want in her to stay. He's talking about a big chunk of a family business. Not only that, he's insulting his father. But the father said, okay. He's got to find his way in the world. He'll never be mine if he stays. He's got to make his own choices. And if this is what he wants, then I'm going to give him the opportunity to find the truth. Because the truth to the Father was more important than the stuff. Do you understand that with God? Why didn't God stop me from doing this or that? Because the truth is important to God that we discover within ourselves our need for him. Then we can enjoy the full benefits of what he's got. That's the whole point. The younger man went off with a big chunk of the father's estate and wasted it. The elder son stayed home. Now here's what happened at the division, the way it would work legally. <clears throat> one third of the estate went to the younger son. One third went to the older son. And the father, as long as he was living, kept the other third. According to our understanding of the way Scripture was, uh, things were divided, what happened is that... <clears throat> As long as the father was living, he, he really owned it all. But he gave up one-third to the younger and one-third to the older prematurely. But he retained probably one-third of it for himself. But when he died, his one-third would go to the older son. Because the eldest always got double portion. So 
what happened is when the younger son comes home and asked to be a hired person, he was genuinely honest. He knew he had no claim at all that the father had his third, two-thirds actually at that time, but would, that his brother was entitled to the rest of the estate. He had no claim to the estate. All he wanted to ask for was, let me be one of your hired people. I'll work for you. I've wasted mine. I'll work for you. That was his attitude. And he repented when he came home. He said, for I have sinned against heaven and against you. That's an interesting phrase in the Bible. It shows up over and over again. And anybody who has an understanding that when we say, I have sinned against you, that's one thing. Forgive me, you know, somebody can forgive you. It won't make a bit of difference sometimes with them. We just sort of cast forgiveness out there like we mean it, and we don't always mean it. But if we understand the idea that forgiving unforgiveness and uh, lovelessness is a sin against heaven. It's a sin against God. God's order of things, the thing that makes the world uninhabitable in some places, hatred, division, anger, withdrawal, my group, your group, the whole thing we do to divide and destroy, the whole way we approach people as my people, your people, you, you know, this and that. We have ways of separating in our thinking. We all do it. Why do I know this? Because I do it. I do it. Anyone who really wants to comprehend the Bible must first of all see themselves in the Bible. And that's the reason for the story. Jesus was preaching to a self-righteous generation, a people who practice religion religiously. He was talking here to the Pharisees who were like the elder son, who stood back, who measured their measure was themselves compared to others. And that's the way this world works, by the way, doesn't it? Most people have no idea of, of the righteousness of God, of how our wrongs violate the order of God, how the very things we want can only be had when we recognize the order of God, yield to Him, yield to His ways, make them a part of our practical life. When I became a Christian, I understood to some small degree that I was supposed to do Christian stuff. Right? I was supposed to be generous. I was supposed to be, you know, if I really love God, I was going to love other people. I was going to push over discomforts in my life to get past that, to be where Jesus stood with people that were unsavory, unlikable, unlovely, wallflowery. I learned that I, I understood at least that I should uh, pray with earnesty, earnestness and worship with my whole heart and desire for God to flood me with His grace, uh, but also accept His judgments. I understood that. Why I don't see? Because I read it in the Word. And the Word convicts me continually, day in, day out, how far, how much 
how needy I am. Some time ago, I had a good reason to, uh, and I had to be encouraged to do this, ask somebody's forgiveness. I fought it, by the way. But I finally did it. And I uh, did it even then, begrudging the fact that I had to do it. See, we all kind of drag slowly to the throne of grace, don't we? We, we, we make our, but at any rate, somebody said, well, you didn't have to do that. Yes, I did. I know, I know intellectually I did. Not because that little thing was just a small picadillo, or compared to others, it wasn't as bad as someone else, or blah, blah, blah. I had to do it, and I, I'm more aware of it than ever now as I grow older, how close I am to the, seeing Jesus face to face. It's important to me to observe and understand the original sin of my nature, which is contrary to everything good and godly and loving and pure. Oh, wretched man I am, Paul said. The good that I would do, I do not do. And the evil that I would not do, I do. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Praise be to God for Jesus Christ. You think he was just uttering that? Nobody more enigmatic, no more conflicted than Paul. We're all equally conflicted. He tells it and describes it just as it is. Even in our best and most anointed moments, those moments of grace and holiness, when the beams of light come down from heaven, we'll find ourselves the next minute doing Peter did, denying the very grace that gave us light. Do you understand that? This is not just some Presbyterian doctrine that we all say, we're just sinners saved by grace. How easy we say that stuff. No, this is practical. It's a gut puncher. It punches us in the gut day by day and night by night. This doctrine is just describing something that God wants us to know. We are indeed sinners, deep sinners, potentially awful sinners, if we want to put various, saved by wondrous grace. Younger son came home smelling of pigsty, stumbling down a road from hunger, dirty and dusty and filthy, and comes and as he's approaching home, the Bible says in the story that the father ran out to meet him. And you can picture that any way you want. I see it in slow motion. Chariots of fire. Can't get there fast enough. Can't you see that? No, no, I love it. <laughs> the father fl flying as hard as he can to beat to his son's robes floating in the air. He's making air flow as much as an old man could. With his arms outstretched, he reaches for his son before he can hardly say his words of repentance and pulls him into his breast. And, father, and the son says, Father, forgive me for I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy. Genuinely heartfelt words to be your son. The father said, Hush, accept that. You're my son. Hey, quick, someone. Go bring a robe. The finest robe. 
No, not that old rag in the back. Bring the finest one. But sir, he's covered with pig poop. Nevertheless, bring him here. And he covered him up and pulled him closer. I feel that when God loves me. Do you? He said, bring his ring. Where's the ring? Well, why the ring? Bring the ring. It's a family symbol. He belongs here. He's in the family. I'm not taking you back, son, as a hired man. You'll have to work, probably, but here. You're a full-stated son. As far as I'm concerned, as long as I'm alive, you share in my part of the estate. That was a rich symbol. Hopefully, I'm sure in the father's heart, the younger, the older son, when he came in and understood what was happening, would be so welcoming because it would have been so much like that family to love that, each other that much if they followed the father's example. Truth is, we don't love each other that much. Truth is, we don't follow our father's example. The truth is, too often in the church, in society, we like the elder son. Stands back, distances himself, analyzes things to death, which I do, you do, but I do a lot of it, until I have to remember. There, but for the grace of God, go I. If we're true, true Christian believers, Bible believers, we have to understand that while we can see the darkness and shadow of sin on others' lives, we can also must see it on ours. And when we see it anywhere, the only hope for us is to break the bonds of comparison with other people, because we always find someone worse, and to break the bonds of the idea that we never did anything bad, worthy of confession. For we are all brothers and sisters under the skin. When I was, uh, you heard, I know, the song, Oh, we're all equal at the foot of the cross. How many of you heard that? Now, I wonder what spin you take on it, but I think mostly when I thought that, we're all equal at the foot of the cross, I thought more about the fact that God's love was equalized at the foot of the cross. I didn't think enough about my ugliness is equal to other ugliness at the foot of the cross. You know, Jesus favored in his teaching, if you noticed. I think you reflect. He favored, it seemed at times, the sinners and the people who fouled up badly who had committed an utterly visible sins. And he was really tough on we who go to church. Why? Because we are often more likely, and this is generalization, 
to bury our sin, our sinful heart, our ugliness, in the fact that we haven't done anything that anybody knows about.